that their protector against death that is coming is no less than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The death that comes for all is only evaded finally and forever by the blood of Jesus Christ being applied to your life. Our taking of this meal is both a reminder of the reality and a symbol of that reality. We ingest the blood of Jesus Christ. It becomes one with us. The destruction of the Lord might not come upon us, but that he would pass us over. The sacrifice of Jesus, the spilling of his blood, allows for God to pass over his people in judgment. For that judgment falls upon him. The Lord's Supper is a sacrifice. And secondly, the Lord's Supper is a covenant. Again, this passage in Luke reminds us of this. Luke is distinct here from the other two Gospels that sound most like him, from Matthew and Mark. Both of them say that this is a covenant. Luke goes out of his way to say, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is distinct from all of the other covenants. A covenant is probably best understood as something along the lines of a contract, an agreed-upon relationship between two parties, sealed with a sacrifice and a meal. This is at least what it was in ancient Old Testament times, although you wonder how much more carefully CEOs would make deals if they were the ones that had to sacrifice a sheep directly afterwards. It would make board meetings a lot more interesting. There's a particular Old Testament text where we see this very clearly, as God has made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham, in Genesis 15, hears the word of the Lord, and he says that he believes in it. It's credited to him as righteousness, but he, he does ask a question. He says, in verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Possess this land that you have promised me. How am I supposed to know that I will possess it? My, my children after me, they will possess this land. How am I supposed to know? God's answer is simply, I'll make a covenant with you. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, and a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and lay each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Later on in that passage, he says, When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land. He sacrifices these animals, but he splits them in half, and he separates them so that there is a pathway between them. When it becomes dark, the Lord himself shows up and passes between them as a smoking pot and a flaming torch, just like he would protect his people Israel as they came out of Egypt. It is a symbol that the Lord himself is passing through these things. The reason why they pass through them is a symbol. It's to say, what happens to these animals? May it happen to me if I break my terms of the covenant? If I do not fulfill my end of the bargain, may I be split and sacrificed just like these animals? As a matter of fact, we know that's what it means because Jeremiah 34 tells us, there God says, the men who transgressed, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf they split in two and pass between its parts. It says, you failed to keep your end of the bargain. You have destroyed my covenant and because of that, you will become like the symbol of the covenant itself. I will split you in two. And Jesus is saying, here, there's a new covenant in my blood. Our Lord Jesus himself has suffered and died, and he stands at the very basis of the covenant between God and his people. All those who trust in him, 
Every single one who places their hopes for justification and reconciliation with God in his death and resurrection. All those who do so will be upheld, will be forgiven, will be justified, will be unified to God and receive all of the blessings that God can possibly pour out upon them. All of the promises of the Old Testament, all of the riches of the inheritance that belong to Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior of all of the world, everything in creation is yours to trust in him. But this covenant is unlike any other covenant because the curse itself has already been paid. Unlike other covenants, where those who break the covenant have to undergo the curse themselves, Jesus has already become the curse for us. He already undergoes what our breaking of the covenant would mean for us. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who stand in his sacrifice. Not only is he the one who passes between the animals, he himself is broken as the animals. He is split and bleeds like those animals. Our celebration of the supper is nothing less than a reenactment of that very covenant. It is our reminder that God has promised an ending good to us, that he has made that promise binding on his very self. Because there is nothing else greater to promise upon. God promised his very being to us. So he will never fail in that promise. And that therefore, even when we fail to live up to the terms of that covenant, when we fail to do what God commands of us, when we fail to uphold the goodness of God in all of our actions and in everything that we say and everything we do, our debts are already accounted for. Our sins are already forgiven. For Jesus has paid the curse. The Lord's Supper is a covenant. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is sustenance. It is sustenance. In John 6, we have the portrayal in the book of John, as we talked about in Sunday school not too terribly long ago, of the provision of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ for us. It comes at an interesting place. All the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place it at the very end, the Passover meal. John wishes to talk about what the Lord's Supper means for us, not at that Passover meal, but at the feeding of the 5,000. He miraculously fed the 5,000, which has made him an instant celebrity. People now have many more requests of Jesus. They want to make him king. And in all that, Jesus says these words in John 6, verses 47 through 59. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things at the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. John is writing much later than the other Gospels, and because of this, I think that this is a direct contrast, not to overwhelm the other Gospels, not to say that they are wrong, but simply to supplement them. The other Gospels portray this as a Passover meal. But you would be wrong to think of this meal and think of the provision of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ solely as something that happened in the past, as a one-time event that has no more bearing on you other than the fact that you believe in it and Jesus one time died for your sins. After the rescue of his people from Egypt, God led them into the wilderness where there is no water, where there is no food, that they might learn to trust that God would provide all they needed. If you were a nomadic tribe of 12, you might be able to eke out a living for a while. When you are a nation of a million, you die in the wilderness. You die in the desert. So God kindly and graciously takes them to the desert where they know they have no life in and of themselves and miraculously for 40 years never ceases to faithfully give them life. The main part of this was manna that fell from heaven. A wafer-like bread that appears on the ground in the day, each day, morning by morning, save the Sabbath. By this alone, God sustains his people in a place where death was certain for them. And Jesus now says, hey, that's what I'm doing, man. Not the manna that they ate, which kept them alive for 40 years, but they died but true manna, living manna that will keep you alive forever. Even if you die, you will live. He looks at that manna and he says, this is, this is something of a, a knockoff. It's, it's lucky charms, but the Walmart kind, which we tell our kids is the same, but it's not the same. He says, I'm the true manna. If you, if you, if you trust in me, if you eat my body and drink my blood, which he, he obviously doesn't mean literally. The man's standing there, no one's taking a bite out of his ear. Like, he clearly means it metaphorically, but he does mean that you have, to, you have to take in his body and his blood. You have to believe in him. His blood and his body are shed for you. It's not just the Passover redone. Rather, this meal is our sustenance. It is meant to be the very thing that provides us life in the wilderness. From Egypt to the promised land, from our redemption to our exaltation, we need life. This world cannot provide it for us. You, you might not believe it. If you look around this world, there's a number of promises that this world will give you life. It will give you goodness. It will give you the things you want. It can make all of your dreams come true. We even call it the American dream. It can give you everything that you ever hoped for. It's a lie. It is a mirage in the desert that will lead you to your death. The only thing that will give you life here, the only thing that will fulfill you here, the only thing that will be for your good here is the giving of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. He provides us with all we need in this life. His sacrifice gives us grace. His sacrifice gives us forgiveness. His sacrifice helps us to learn how to forgive others. His sacrifice allows for God's unrelenting favor to be over us. His sacrifice allows for all of God's goodness to surround us. 
His sacrifice gives us life in this life. The Lord's Supper is sustenance for you. And finally, the Lord's Supper is unifying. Here we read from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 26. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Should I commend you in this? Oh, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This passage is undoubtedly the passage that most people think about when they think about the Lord's Supper. Paul's instructions to the Corinthians. The issue of unity is the issue before them. Some people are apparently rich and they are able to have their meal. Maybe it is the fact that the poor have to stay longer at jobs. Maybe it's simply the fact that the poor have jobs. The rich have their own meals and they, they're sick of waiting for the poor. They don't want to share with the poor and so they have their own meals. They're calling at the Lord's Supper but they are eating before the poor can come or they're not leaving any food for the poor. You should notice how strongly the language in here is about rich and poor. It's an arrogant practice. Something that looks down on those who have less and excludes them from fellowship, showing great disunity in the body. It's the kind of thing you can hear that people would blow off. Listen, Paul, we're hungry. Food was just sitting there. We didn't know they didn't come at the appointed time. Who knows if they were even going to come? So we just decided to eat. After all, Paul, you were the one who said, the kingdom of God does not consist of food and drink, so what's the big deal? And Paul would have none of it. He says it is a big deal. In this passage is one of my favorite sort of throwaway lines in all of Scripture. He says, In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And he says, what? And then you expect him to say, how can you get drunk? He, he is so upset about divisions in the church, he doesn't care if you get drunk. Go home on your own time and get drunk. But don't, don't make a mockery of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. He says nothing about the sin of getting drunk here. His whole focus and attention is on the division within the church that this causes. The meal we eat here is one of unity. Jesus died for all our sins. In the kingdom of God, there are no second-class citizens. There's not some who are rich and some who are poor. There's not some who have and some who do not. There are not a separate 
tier and a separate meal for those who are good tithers versus those who are weaker at tithing. There's not a separate set of wine, the good wine or the good juice, we're Baptists, the good juice, right? The non-knockoff juice that we give to those who are super pure. We're all equal before God. Even if our worldly stations are different, that means nothing to the Lord. Therefore, if we come to the Lord's table, we are to demonstrate that unity here. To do anything else is to nullify the very thing that the Lord's table is meant to symbolize. Paul says, when you, when you do this, if you take it in disunity, it's, it's just a meal. It's just a meal. It's not the Lord's Supper that you're taking. You're just feeding yourselves. Don't think that there's any special meaning in it. You are, with arrogance and division, cutting yourself off from grace, from nourishment, from the truth of the covenant in which you confess yourself to be. It's a meal of unity. It's not a meal meant for individuals. It's not a meal meant for just any group of believers. I've read commentators who talk about, man, I had this wonderful time taking the Lord's Supper. We were, I literally read this. We were hiking. I had... You know, we went up, we're, we're hiking, we got up to the top of this little cliff. We sat down, me and a couple of believers. We had some Doritos and Mountain Dew. Like, this is a, a PhD guy, right? I celebrated the Lord's Supper. No, man, you, you didn't. Like, you, you had a very good meal. I am not one to discredit the goodness of Doritos. It's, I'm sure it was a great meal. I'm sure that you needed it. But what you did was not the Lord's Supper. It was a nice meal, a great time of fellowship. Perhaps you praised God. Perhaps you worshipped him up on that mountain. That is fine. But to think that that meant that you took the Lord's Supper is a joke. After all, could the rich not have simply said, well, we took the Lord's Supper when we were gathered together? Paul says, that's not the Lord's Supper. It doesn't matter if you're just around other believers. It needs to be the church gathered together, eating together. One from many. It's not just a group or not just a meal meant for any group, but for the gathered body of the church. So today, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, when you search yourself, please be reminded, you're not searching to see if you're holy or pure or worthy enough to take the Lord's Supper. If you were concerned about that, let me save you the time. You're not. Don't come forward. If you think that you can somehow earn what the Lord Jesus Christ has given to you, you're making a mockery of the gift. You cannot be good enough, and you will not be good enough. You're not searching to be worthy of this meal. Rather, you are searching for any division that you have caused within the church, any division that you have between another brother or sister, any unrepentant sin that you have that would deny the truth of this meal. We gather together to partake, to eat, to remember, to be nourished, and to be unified. Let us prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And as we prepare to do so, we can do no better than our Lord did, who gave thanks to our God for the provision of Jesus for our sins, our nourishment in this desert, and our unity together. Join me in prayer as we give thanks to our God. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you and give thanks to you for your provision to us. We are frail and weak creatures, and you sustain us. We are sinful creatures before you, yet you provide for our sins and forgive them fully. We are divisive creatures, yet you bring us near one another. May all praise be to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who on account of our sins and for our behalf took on flesh, humbled himself to the point of death, that he might redeem us from our wretched estate. To him be granted the highest name and praise, and may all power, glory, wisdom, honor, might, and blessing be given to him always. We ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen. As we prepare, I would call the deacons to come down as I prepare the table and for our musicians to come.